innovative, often duplicated. When enough people get on the trend, I elevate it. Make it way harder for them to follow what I take. It hard to swallow like a lozenger lodged in your trachea. Goodness gracious, bruh, I can never make this up. So just take your stuff, rake it up, and take the bus. Never fake the funk, you painted skunks. You played enough, I'm lifting bars to outer space, so the weight is up. Fight. WHUPLP Hillsboro, North Carolina, the center of the known world. This is the Cage Side Concussion Cast, your source for the martial arts in the Carolinas and beyond. Today, we're going to talk a lot of Brazilian jiu-jitsu because yesterday was Toro Cup, the big super fight event where 16 outstanding jiu-jitsu matches happened at Triangle Jiu-Jitsu here in Durham, North Carolina. One of them uh, won by our guest, our featured interview, Daniel Frank, black belt from Revolution BJJ. We'll get to our featured interview with Daniel in just a second. I want to spend the whole hour talking with him about his training life, his teaching journey, his philosophy of jiu-jitsu, his match, and much, much more. But I just have two short things to get to before we get into the interview. The first, got to tell you how to get a hold of us. You can always email the show at cagesidewhup at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the interviews. Let us know who you want to hear from. Let us know what you want to hear more of. You can also get at us on Twitter and Instagram at cage whoop that's cage side whup and you can always uh like our facebook page we share a lot of content from the interviews there at cage side radio so please do interact with the show you can subscribe to the show on both itunes and stitcher and if you like us please leave us a review so without further ado we're going to get right into the news segment and daniel will join me at the end of the news segment when we start to talk about the toro cup i want to talk about upcoming events first and then talk about uh the big toro cup that just happened upcoming next weekend uh there are two great events one happening in dc one happening in goldsboro north carolina in goldsboro hoist gracie black belt roy marsh one of the area's best instructors is going to be giving a seminar at hoist gracie goldsboro which is jake whitfield's school you've probably heard both of those guys on the show and so you know that if you want to learn jiu-jitsu you could do a lot worse than going out to that so so go out to that support that seminar if you're going to be in the D.C. area, Beta Academy is holding Grapplethon once again, September 17th. I believe it starts at 11 in the morning. Please check me on that. But this time, uh, the event is going to benefit Submit the Stigma. Uh, the proceeds will donate be donated to the National Association for Mental Illness, NAMI. And it's going to be a, a it's always a fun time, a terrific event. I'm looking forward to that. And if you want to support a great cause while getting in some uh, terrific roles with wonderful people, head up to Beta Academy September 17th. So those events are coming up. Uh, the don't forget that the uh, the the first ever IBJJF tournament in North Carolina, the Charlotte Open, will be October eighth. Registration for that is open right now. And so finally, to close off the news segment, we're going to talk a little bit about Toro Cup, which, which uh, if you've been listening to the show, you know Toro BJJ hosts an event at Cage Side Fight Company and Triangle Jiu-Jitsu, which is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Super Fights. It's a great community event. Uh, about 300 people showed up. And I want to briefly recap that by talking about some of my favorite matches. If you want to hear an in-depth recap, you can go to our SoundCloud page or to iTunes. I posted a bonus podcast which had on-site interviews with the Corbet brothers, with Anthony Elber, with Adam Jetton, with David Porter and with Kim DeFiori from uh, from uh, Beta Academy where we did an on-site recap uh, in depth. We'll be talking about some of the Toro Cup matches with Daniel in, in a second but if you want to learn all about the matches uh, go to our iTunes or our SoundCloud page and, and check that out. So I want to throw out a couple of, uh, of favorite matches from, from my perspective and then um, I'll bring in my guest Daniel Frank to talk about his match with Michael Allen from Checkmat BJJ uh, which is like so 
first of all, major kudos to John Bagels Telford for putting together a really tremendous card. It was, uh, you know, when I saw 16 matches on the card, at first I was like, this could be a really long day. And whenever you have 16 matches, there's always the risk of, you know, one of the matches being maybe a mismatch or, or there being some clunkers, which there really weren't during this show. I thought that there were a bunch of really, really memorable matches. The two that I would throw out there uh, as my personal favorite matches of the day uh, were Tim Dawson from Dave Jacobs Jiu-Jitsu in Washington, D.C. against Trey Pace from Team Rock down here uh, in, in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And both of those guys were super technical, super skilled. Both of them went for the submission the whole time. Um, it was one of those matches that although it went the distance, you never there was never rest and you were never bored. Tim Dawson ends up taking that match on points. Really, really terrific match. The other match, which you can see on Facebook that I would cite as one of the best matches, is show favorite DeAndre Corbet against show favorite Josh Murdoch, uh, two beastly brown belts, both of whom have had just tremendous competitive success. I loved this match for a lot of reasons. Uh, great transitions, really superb technical jujitsu from both guys, and a back-and-forth match where Josh caught DeAndre in a toehold early in the match. It looked really tight. Uh, you know, you can hear my interview with DeAndre in the bonus podcast I posted on SoundCloud where he acknowledges that, yeah, that was a, it was a, it was a, a tight, close toehold. DeAndre ends up rolling out and escaping and then taking top position and finishing Josh with a wrist lock from side control. And so all of the matches really were a ton of fun to watch. But for me, those were really fun. And in the department of segues, my other favorite match of the day, honestly, it was really good to see Daniel Frank get the chance to compete at Toro Cup because uh, you had a last-minute opponent dropout. We don't quite know what happened, but Michael Allen from Checkmat ends up taking the match on short notice, and I'm going to I'm gonna give you the results, and then we'll bring in my guest Daniel Frank to break down the match. Daniel winds up uh, collar-choking him from the guard, and I would love to hear how you did that, but first of all, uh, welcome to the show, Daniel Frank, Black Belt from Revolution BJJ. Thank you. Good morning. So Daniel, if you don't know him, is one of the most active competitors in the region, is a really avid teacher, probably teaches more classes than anybody, uh, all told, and uh, and competes all the time at U.S. Grappling, at you know basically any tournament organization. I, I see you out there competing. Yeah, and anything so, close by. <laughs> and so how did you first get the call to be on Toro Cup? Um, well, I had originally been on Toro Cup 1, which was back in 2015, I think, and that was a great show. Um, a lot of great matches there. I ended up uh, losing controversially due to a ref's mistake, and I don't want to say the ref's name, but it does rhyme with Schmavid Mall. Does his is his brother a black belt? His brother is a black belt. But um, eventually, the second, the third came, and uh, John uh, asked me to be on this cup, and uh, of course, I said yes. So it's not too far to get down here, and then. Um, Originally, I was supposed to go against John Knight, who I believe comes out of Neil Weaver's gym. And then maybe a couple days before the match, uh, I heard he couldn't make it. And then um, there was a scramble, and uh, eventually I got my opponent. So thank you very much to him for showing up, and I was able to compete. Awesome. One of the things, before we get into the, the nuts and bolts of the match itself, I want to say it's difficult for you as a smaller black belt sometimes to find super fight opponents that you haven't competed against before. Because Definitely. Yeah, and so, so that's one of the reasons that we were we were a little, we were very excited to see you compete against a black belt that's your own size. That's something that we don't get the pleasure of very much. And I don't know how much, like we didn't have Michael Allen weigh in at Toro Cup, but he was clearly a, a guy that's much larger than, than you are. But that's, that's something that you must be very accustomed to, doing the absolute divisions. Yeah, it was no problem. Um, 
even at the the academy I train at, Revolution BJJ out of Richmond, there's a, a few guys my size, but a majority of the competitors or the uh, practitioners there are bigger than I am. So the absolute is no problem for me because I'm used to doing that every single day. So uh, even with uh, Michael, he was maybe the same height as I was, a little shorter than I was. But, um, yeah, he had some poundage on me. Yeah, he's clearly, I, I believe he comes from a catch wrestling background. I know he's done quite a bit of wrestling, and you can kind of see that in the body type, very stocky body type. And so uh, we're going to get into your uh, how you got started training jiu-jitsu, your teaching at Revolution and all that. But first, let's just talk about the match. Uh, did you have a game plan going into the match? And if so, what was that? And did the match go the way that you thought it would? Um, well, my game plan was to uh, play the guard position because... That's my forte. I enjoy doing that. Um, so I wanted to get down to the mat as quickly as possible, make some grips. So he helped me out by hitting a double leg, which was great because it put me right into the clothes guard where I wanted to go. And then uh, from there, it didn't exactly go as I wanted because I love playing lapel guard and worm guard. But he didn't really want to stand up, which took away his legs. So my game plan was really working that clock. I wanted to do the worm guard, lapel guard, do all the fancy stuff, but at about the eight-minute mark when uh, I kind of made that decision, all right, I'm either going to get up on top, and at that point I was like, let me try this choke. And Mm -hmm. it's something I teach in my gi intro courses. It's something everybody learns in the first month of jiu-jitsu, and it it worked out. Yeah, and just the basic collar choke from closed guard, which is also one of my favorite chokes. Uh, you know, it's simple but super effective. And, you know, I, I had noticed that it seemed like he was trying to take away your worm and lapel guard by, by as you say, staying on the knees, uh, trying to, like, just kind of keep it in tight and stay safe. But um, eventually, like, you were able to, like, what did you what did you use to set up the collar choke, knowing that? Well, at uh, right when I heard uh, somebody yell out eight minutes left, that's when I decided, all right, I'm going to come up. I attempted a, a sweep, maybe just grabbing at his lapels like a, a scissor-esque type of sweep. And when he uh, went to defend it, I slipped the hand in the collar. And for all my matches, all my training, whenever I get that hand in the collar, it's, it's lights out. Mm-hmm. So I put it up to where it needs to be behind his neck. And then um, when I put the hand in, he defended by bringing his hand up to his face, but he left his neck open. So I just hopscotched his hand, went in, and then um, he tapped out. As Jake Whitfield has said to me many times, good things happen when you put a hand in the collar. Of course. <laughs> so all, all, you, all you white belts and blue belts out there, just do it. So it, it was super, it, it, was a, it was a good match. It was really fun to watch you, you uh, emerge victorious uh, at, at the Toro Cup yesterday, especially somebody that, uh, you know, puts so much uh, time and effort into competing. So... Let's take a step back for a minute, and I just want to introduce, you know, mo- most of the people in the local jiu-jitsu community are familiar with you, with your competition, with your teaching, but I want to, I want to talk about how you got started, and so in order to, by way, by way of introducing you to some of those listeners who may not be f- as familiar, how did you get started training jiu-jitsu, when, where, and what made you get interested? Well, um, I got started actually in South Korea, so... Um I went down to university down at College of Charleston in South Carolina, and I was a teacher there in high school for a year, and my friends convinced me to go to South Korea, where I became a kindergarten teacher and stayed there for 10 years. But uh, 
in the first year training, well, in the first year being a teacher there, since um, you're working maybe as a kindergarten teacher, like nine to nine every single Monday to Friday, you don't really get out much. And when we got out on the weekends, it was head out to the party areas and party all night and then go to sleep, wake up mid-afternoon, do the same thing the next day. And eventually I got bored of that. And so I looked in the uh, Korean English newspaper and I just saw an ad for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and I had no idea what it was. So I had uh, I had seen UFC, early UFCs, but I didn't really pay attention to it. It wasn't like uh, on the radar for me. And there was no YouTube back then, so I couldn't go type in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and watch matches and I didn't bother to like look it up in a dictionary. I just went there and was like, all right, I guess this is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And when I went there, that must have been 2003. So at that point, I walked in, a couple other foreigners walked in. It was kind of a dirty place, like leaky roof, uh, geese hanging off the back, and a whole bunch of Koreans like uh, training what was jiu-jitsu. So it looked like wrestling to me. And um, one of the instructors there, or person I thought was the instructor, spoke some English, but mostly the people there didn't speak any English. And he kind of just threw us in like like what happened back in the old days where they're like, you go fight this guy. <laughs> and I was like, all right, uh, I have no idea what I'm doing. So got my butt kicked and then... Um, did you have a wrestling or judo background or anything or just like go no. fight that guy? Just kind of. <clears throat> yep. I had no sort of combat background. I had taken karate as a kid, but I think everybody had taken karate as a kid. I played sports like baseball and soccer, but nothing, um, nothing along the lines of wrestling. So when I went there, I just had no idea what was going on. But then when I came back the second time, I was the only foreigner that came back. And then after a week or two, one of the guys told me I needed to go buy a gi, which was entertaining because my Korean wasn't very good at the time. So at least he sent me in the right direction and it took me forever to find it. And I probably overpaid by a hundred bucks for it. But uh, I found a gi and then I, uh, I stuck with it. How much does your experience as a kindergarten teacher help you in instructing Sean McChesney? Well, you have to be very patient with kindergarten students and you get very frustrated by them and Sean McChesney would be similar to like a pre-k student where there's frustrating and there's extremely frustrating and trying to teach him techniques is extremely frustrating <laughs> one other question which is uh, is it true that the only reason you competed at Toro Cup is to, to to make sure Andrew Smith had to cover your classes oh yes I wanted Andrew to do the Saturday conditioning class because it would be fantastic <laughs> And he apologized ahead of time. But I also was um, hoping to get uh, Sean McChesney to do a one-arm battle versus you at Toro Cup 5. So hopefully we can make that happen. We'll do that. I basically only use one arm during jiu-jitsu. You only need one arm to bear and bolo. That's all you need. You know, absolutely. And, you know, so I figure one of us will... One of us will use his one arm. The other will try to defend with his one arm. It'll, it'll be great. John Bagel's Tilford, make it happen. The people have spoken. In all seriousness, though, you, you teach more than any instructor that I know, I think, in that uh, you, you know, when I was up training at Revolution for a week, 
you were the, I, I made some kind of joke about like, I, I'm going to train all the time when I'm here. I'm going to be here almost as much as Daniel. And everybody just kind of laughed because that's not possible. <laughs> uh, so maybe you could talk us through like what classes you teach at Revolution. And, 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 and from there, we can talk about your instructional philosophy. Uh, yeah, usually from, let's say, Sunday to Saturday, like um, I'm up there for the open mats. I teach uh, our no-gi intro course, one of our no-gi intro courses. I teach our gi intro course. Um, I teach most of the kids' jiu-jitsu courses uh, along with our level two, our fundamentals classes that are open for a little more experience, white belts and all belts. And then um, I'll always cover for people who can't make it. And then I still go and train uh, at the advanced classes that Andrew Smith teaches. I'll show up at the 6 a.m. Uh, Savage Kitten training with uh, Trey Martin. So I'm in there as much as humanly possible. And then it's my only job. So when I'm not teaching the classes there, I may be teaching private lessons or being a super jujitsu nerd and watching matches on YouTube or reading books on it or listening to you on the radio. <laughs> and we appreciate it. Do you find teaching helps you as a competitor and a practitioner? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think most people who get into teaching jujitsu realize that when you start teaching techniques, you pay more attention to the fine details, where when you are just learning and doing and even succeeding at doing these techniques, you might not think of it in precise terms. You just kind of gloss over it. But when you have to instruct others on how to do it, you have to think about, all right, what makes you have to do A in order to get B, and in order to get to C, B needs to be correct. So you have to break it down into those terms, and then after doing that, just to do the technique, you have to think about a whole, a whole group of things as a teacher, time management, how to address problems, like um, problem solving, all of these other things that might come up, and then how to put it all together so that the people who are being taught these techniques enjoy it, learn it, and want to come back for more. One of the things that you do that I think more instructors should do is you put together lesson plans for each of your classes. And, and you know, everyone has a different sort of educational philosophy, so I want you to talk about yours a bit uh, in order to, by way of explaining, like I think that, uh, you know, a lot of guys just show up and, and teach. Like, hey, we're teaching... I'm teaching the stack pass today, or hey, I'm teaching the the the, the day one collar choke from guard. Yeah. You know, I got this. But like, so are lesson plans th things that you do for every class you teach, even the the most basic stuff? And if so, why why do you feel like that's necessary? Well, when I started uh, in Korea, my um, instructor there, Yi Hee Sung, at a Korea BJJ Academy, he's a great teacher. Um, I'm happy to have uh, learned from him from white all the way to brown belt. Um, but when he taught, it was kind of all over the place. So one day would be ankle locks, the next day would be the omoplata, and then we'd go to standing. So it was still great techniques and it was great learning, but there was no sort of cohesion in one lesson led to another. And then being a teacher... I'm just so used to making lesson plans and daily, weekly, monthly, yearly plans that it keeps me organized. And I'm pretty anal about keeping everything clean, precise, and getting it done. 
and it definitely helps me. Like I could think about, I will teach this technique. I'll put a note down for, make sure that I mention this, and then I'll put the time down so that I keep on that time management. Because at Revolution, we have so many classes that are following up on each other that I can't be two minutes late because another class is beginning and I don't want to cut in on our judo classes or our Muay Thai classes or other jiu-jitsu classes. So it's a good way to keep instructors organized and then also it's a good way to look back on uh, what you did two years ago, two weeks ago, two months ago and say, okay, I was teaching this technique, this is how I taught it. And then I'll always put notes at the bottom to say this worked out very well or this did not work out very well. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of instructors would benefit by writing lesson plans down. It would definitely help their teaching. You mentioned that you went uh, from white belt to brown belt w- with your first instructor, E. He Song. Yep. So can you talk to us about how you wound up getting your black belt? And, and maybe if, is there a, I, I don't know when you left Korea. And so maybe you could throw some timeline in there. Yeah, so I started jiu-jitsu in 2003 in Korea, and there training, um, got my blue belt in maybe a year, competed a lot as a, a blue belt there. I didn't compete much as a white belt. I competed once as a white belt, and um, I ended up breaking my foot in the semifinals of the match. So it was those old um, puzzle mats, and one of those little pieces that fit together, the little puzzle parts, wasn't there. So after I jumped guard and I had uh, went down, my foot fell into that and broke it. So I won the match, but I couldn't compete in the finals. And I ended up getting my blue belt uh, in the hospital there. And then... Um, wait, wait, wait. So your instructor came to the hospital and gave you your blue belt while you were in the hospital? He, he didn't actually come. He <laughs> gave it to somebody to give to me. So he didn't show up at the hospital, but I did get my blue belt. But then uh, I competed a lot as a blue belt there, but... As I worked my way up to purple and brown, there weren't a lot of competitions in Korea to to train at, so I would have to travel. And I went to Tokyo a lot to train at Axis Academy to do the Hicks and Gracie Cups there, the Asian Opens, the Copa Axis Cups. And I got a lot of good experience there. And then I'd also head to the Pan Ams, to the Worlds, but to fly from Korea to... LA to do the worlds once a year would cost me a grand, 1500 bucks. So it just wasn't feasible to do over and over. And then after about 10 years teaching kindergarten, teaching elementary school, it just stopped being exciting. And it wasn't the kids. The kids are fantastic. So if anybody wants to be a teacher, definitely do it because the kids are awesome. But uh, management and that stuff starts to wear on you. And by that time, the classes I was teaching jujitsu-wise became more prominent than the classes I was teaching English on. So I decided to make a change, and uh, I had just gotten married at that point, convinced my wife to come to the United States with me, and we just kind of randomly picked out Richmond, Virginia. And I wanted to open my own academy, but the funds weren't there. So I walked into Revolution BJJ one day, and uh, Andrew Smith let me try classes for a week. And after a week, I said, okay, I'd like to work here. And uh, he took me on. Wow, that's excellent. And when did you wind up getting your black belt? 
I got my black belt in January 2014, so almost three years now, uh, from Julio Fernandez. So once I joined the Revolution team under Andrew Smith and Trey Martin, I got my black belt through Julio Fernandez since we are a part of the BJJ Revolution team, along with uh, we, Keith Park now, uh, Vince Newton, Dan Statz, uh, and D. Smith out of Absolute Jiu-Jitsu in Bristol, Tennessee. So there was a large group who picked up uh, black belts at that time. And uh, now we have a, a whole stable, maybe nine black belts at our gym. It's a great place to train. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely is. I can I can definitely vouch for that personally. Uh, so, yeah, um, what you've talked a bit about your competition journey. I want to know what you get out of that. Like, it, it, you know, clearly it's something that you, you simply enjoy. But is there more? Is it? Do you learn things from competition that you don't feel like you can learn in class? I mean, what, why do you compete so much? Uh, well, first, not everybody has to compete. So I, um, I read a lot of articles, see a lot of questions in magazines, and they talk about can you ever get promoted? Can you become a black belt and not compete? And I definitely think that you can, but if you don't compete, you're definitely missing something. So the, the thrill or the nervousness of competition helps your jiu-jitsu out helps you as a competitor helps you as a person and we were talking about it earlier like i still get nervous competing and i've competed hundreds and hundreds of times but i'll have to go and do sprints to burn that nervous energy i'll go to the bathroom like 20 times beforehand and then i'll still feel butterflies before i'm on the mat and that's something that you have to do in order to deal with other stresses in your life but uh, competition, it's something I did, white belt, blue belt, like, uh, so I couldn't give it up. So I need to compete all the time because it's fun. U.S. grappling, where I compete most of the time, there's great people there. And I enjoy going to Virginia Beach or up to Maryland or down here in North Carolina and then seeing my friends over and over and then trying to choke them. So it's... <clears throat> it's very uh it's fulfilling and i enjoy it and then like you said you do learn stuff that you might not learn on the mats at your home academy because you're competing against guys that you don't compete against every day so if i do compete against sean mcchesney at my academy he knows my game we play the same game over and over same thing with andrew smith we play the same match over and over and over again but then if I take that match, come down here and play it against a Michael Allen, it's going to be different. Mm-hmm. And that's why I've developed certain things like that lapel guard, the worm guard to help my competition out. That makes perfect sense to me. And, you know, and, and it's sort of interesting. I always, I always get the question from people about, you know, why do you continue to compete if, you, if it stresses you out, if you get nervous, if you always get these butterflies. But I think that what you say is exactly right, that it helps you deal with other stresses in your life. And it's, uh, it's, no, uh, it's no surprise to anyone who listens to the show that we're big fans of U.S. grappling. Um, Chrissy Lindsay always says to me that I should make a concussion cast drinking game where one of them is Jeff says U.S. grappling. And I think, uh, I think that might be something that we do. So what do you, what, for you, you've had hundreds of jiu-jitsu matches. Are there a few that stand out as your favorites in competition? Um, One that I really think of a lot, and I actually heard you um, in the background while I was doing it, was against uh, Michael Bejak. Um, 
we might have been in Virginia Beach somewhere around there. Could have been North Carolina. I think it was North Carolina. I think it was Henderson because he's the um, the Gustavo guy. Yeah, big guy, really big guy. Um, it was in the absolute, obviously, and it was a, a points match. So it was 10 minutes long, and I remember three things specifically. Number one, my buddy Sean Zorio was coaching against me. <laughs> <laughs> so he was saying Michael was a part of his team, so he coached against me, and I won't let him forget that. Number two was Michael's a huge, huge guy. So he must have outweighed me by at least 70 pounds. And so for that match, I pulled guard, immediately put him into the worm guard. And the way that I play that worm guard is to stop big guys who are 70, 75 pounds bigger than me from crushing me. I don't want a 75 pound guy like on top of me in side control. I'll never get out. So the worm guard takes away that weight advantage. And for nine minutes, he couldn't break through. We were at a stalemate, and I ended up sweeping, got my two points for the sweep, and he rolled over to the turtle position and started to come up to his feet. And as soon as he came up to his feet, that um, Marcelo Garcia-Rico Rodriguez match was in my head, and I was like, I'm going to jump on his back. And then I jumped up on his back, and I had one hook in, and he was defending the second hook. And then I remembered that Marcelo-Rico match, and I was like, I hope he doesn't jump backwards and try to kill me. And so as I'm, like, fearing for my life, he falls forward, and I'm like, thank God. <laughs> I can, I never got the hook in, but I could hear you in the background doing um, some sort of radio thing, and you're like, this is a real David and Goliath match. <laughs> and I was just like, I hope the time runs out here because... I'm exhausted. I'm up on points, and this guy is huge. And I ended up uh, winning on points, I believe. Yeah, I I remember that match distinctly for a lot of the reasons that you that you just talked about. You know, and uh, we were live streaming it because uh, this was when we were experimenting with some of the new live streaming technologies to see if folks would would watch those matches. That's something that we should actually do more of because that was and. and I think there is, and maybe this is just because you and I are both smaller guys, I think there is something really compelling about that, about seeing a smaller guy find technical ways to counter someone much larger trying to squish them. And I feel like there's something really visceral about that that people react to, and it's probably why a lot of people love jiu-jitsu and that it teaches you techniques. Yeah. So we've talked a couple of times about your worm and lapel guard techniques, and I think most people who listen to the program will know what that is. If not, I'm going to have you explain some of it, but like just by, by way of quick explanation, it's when you use your opponent's gi against them to sort of impede their progress and keep them off of you. It's a complicated, very sport-oriented guard. Maybe you can explain, like you've already talked a little bit about how you started doing that and why you do it, but maybe you could give the listeners some of your worm, worm guard secrets. Well, I picked it up watching... Um a lot of Keenan Cornelius, um, watching him do it in competition, uh, teaching it. But Keenan and I have completely different body types. So there's no way I can do the same sort of techniques that he does. He's uh, 200 pounds approaching heavyweight now. He must be like six foot two or three. And I'm 5'8, 145 pounds. So I've taken his cues and looked at the position and then switched it and made it work for me. But it's basically taking that opponent's lapel and wrapping his leg and my leg together so that we become basically one one person. 
and he can't pass if we're attached. And at that point, it sets up a lot of opportunities for me to go for submissions, go for sweeps, and like you said, not to get squished. So being that smaller guy, you need to stay out of those positions. And like you said, a lot of people like to see that because everybody cheers for the underdog and the little guy is always the underdog. So if I can keep those bigger guys at bay using that technique, eventually I'll find a way to succeed. And I've done it a lot and then it's also backfired a lot, but that's what jujitsu is all about. Exactly. It's one of the things that keeps you humble is that, you know, everybody loses, everybody's gonna everybody's gonna face adversity. So you knew we had to wade into this at some point, this self-defense versus sports jiu-jitsu stuff. And like the worm guard is one of those techniques that is really polarizing, like, like the barambolo, which is one of my favorite techniques. Mm-hmm. A lot of people love it, particularly people that enjoy competing. And a lot of the more purist self-defense people sort of poo-poo it and say, shouldn't be doing that. It's not useful in the street. How do you answer those people? Well, I think a lot of people are a little too bent up on the, the polarizing part of it people tend to go too far to one side or too far to the other side and they'll say self-defense is everything and sport jiu-jitsu is nothing and then vice versa some guys will say no sport jiu-jitsu is the the only thing and self-defense is worthless but like everything there needs to be moderation it needs to be in the middle and when i trained in korea it was a hicks and gracie academy so from white belt up, I had been taught the self-defense style of jiu-jitsu. And even at Revolution BJJ, we still have self-defense classes. So we go over basic self-defense techniques repeatedly. So it is important for any sport practitioner to know how to defend themselves. But when, um, and uh, Trey Martin had mentioned it the other day about uh, pulling guard and he said, you can't do that on the street. And I had told him, well, on the street, I just say hello to people and I'm very cordial. So uh, I won't have to pull guard on the street because I'm not going into street fights. But it is important to know it, but it's also important to know sport jiu-jitsu because it's the game we play. And it's enjoyable and it's something I want to do for life. Not everybody's going to try to punch me in the face. So some people are going to try to barambolo me. So if they are trying to do that, I need to know how to stop it, counter it, and then possibly bear and bolo them. So even as an instructor, if it's a technique that you don't enjoy, you hate the bear and bolo, you hate the worm guard, if you're not learning it yourself, then you're possibly taking away from your students who might want to know how to do it or want to know how to counter it. So you should strive to learn everything. Yeah, I think that's a really healthy perspective because, you know, I, I can say that, you know, a lot of the more, a lot of the more self-defense oriented people I've trained with uh, dislike a lot of the more sport oriented positions. Some of the ones we've named, the deep half guard, but the ones that I think have, I think the best perspective on it is learn how to beat it. Okay, well, how do I learn how to beat it? Well, now I have to understand that position. I have to understand what makes it work. And I, and by, by contrast, to dismantle what makes that work. Exactly. And that's what makes... Jiu-Jitsu great was when uh, Hoffa and Guy Mendez came up and they were using that 50-50 guard and everybody was so upset competing against them. Cobrinho was losing to Hoffa and all the Alliance guys were saying, oh, this guard should be made illegal. And it was like, well, it won't be made illegal. It's part of Jiu-Jitsu. Find a way out of it. And I remember 
that when he was winning, beating uh, Cobrinha at competitions, then I saw a lot of videos pop up that would be, this is how to break the 50-50. This is how to get out of it. This is how to counter it. And that's what makes jiu-jitsu fantastic is something will come up and it might not be brand new. It might be a replay of something and people will give it a new name, but then that'll inspire others to either build on that or find a way to overcome it. And that just helps the sport expand. And then even um, talking about how worm guard and that stuff's not good for self-defense, be prepared for my worm guard self-defense videos. So I will be making a series of worm guard for self-defense uh, with Sean McChesney. So that'll be coming out soon. <laughs> it's it's going to be very good for attacking an opponent with one arm. Yes. So in all seriousness, get well soon, Sean McChesney. Uh, I, I, that's, that, that message is for me. I don't think Daniel agrees. No, not at all. <laughs> So now that you, what else is on the horizon for for you? You know, you've competed at Toro Cup. Obviously, you're continuing to teach at Revolution BJJ. Do you have uh, seminars upcoming? Do you have uh, a tournament schedule that you're trying to adhere to? Uh, yeah, usually at the beginning of the year, I um, I put a whole year schedule out. Uh, nothing fancy. It's just on a scrap of white paper. Break it down into months. I'll write down all the U.S. grappling competitions, uh, the referee certifications that we do. I do enjoy going up to uh, Buffalo, New York. That's where my parents live. Um, Buma, Buffalo United Martial Arts is up there run by Josh Ross Ketry. And I know they are having um, a Buffalo Classic, the first time they're going to have a fall tournament up there, which um, I've made the Buffalo Classics in the spring, which is fantastic because they do an outdoor tournament there which is inside a, a hockey rink outdoors. Fantastic tournament when the weather's good. One time it was freezing cold up there and it was miserable. But good turnout, gets bigger and bigger each time. So I enjoy competing up there, teaching seminars up there. Hopefully I'll make it there sometime in the winter. November I may be doing a seminar out at D. Smith's place in Tennessee. But uh, until then, there's a couple U.S. grapplings coming up. Uh, you were mentioning uh, next week the grapplethon at Beta, and that uh, we also have Val Worthington coming up, and Val is a former guest here. She'll be going to um, Revolution to do a book signing, a talk, and an open mat. So I'm looking forward to that next week. I've never met Val, so that should be fantastic. And then just sticking with training every day, competing, refing, and doing the jujitsu thing mm -hmm. yeah and if you have a chance if you're in richmond uh, you should go train at revolution anyway but especially on september 17th when val worthington is going to be ho hosting as daniel said an open mat book signing and uh you'll learn a lot uh, have a lot of fun there so switching gears just a bit and you can cite people from revolution or people from from your your your, your time in korea but like who are some of the toughest people that you've trained with some of your best training partners that always challenged you and pushed you that you're like wow that person is really really tough really technical well, there's a lot of people. Um, coming out of Korea, the guys that I got my um, blue, purple, brown belt with, they now have their own academies, the uh, black belts out of Korea BJJ Academy. Um, my instructor, Yi Hee Sung's uh, brother, Yi Hee Tae, uh, Yi Hyung Gun, who um, runs Mue, where the uh, gi company out of Korea, and his brother, uh, Yi Sung Gun, 
and then uh, Che Kiwan, who owns uh, an academy out there, were always tough. They were guys that I had to compete against all the time. Uh, a good friend of mine, Corey Nelson, uh, trained there. He's a brown belt, just moved back to Minneapolis, Minnesota, so he should be training up there. Uh, hopefully he'll visit us at one point. And then um, there's a lot of monsters at Revolution BJJ. So we have nine black belts that are always tough to compete against. Uh, we have a lot of brown belts. Our brown belts tend to be older, more broken down guys, but still, if they ever went out and competed, I'm sure they'd do a fantastic job. But going all the way down to our purple belts, Tyler Smith, um, Travis DePriest, these guys are guys that I have to compete against every day who are who push me to be a better jiu-jitsu player. And even our blue belts and then a lot of the white belts that I see at our school are progressing greatly. And then uh, competing all the time, like C.J. Murdoch has been a guy that I have competed against since brown belt. Maybe, I can't even count, like we've competed against each other 20 to 30 times over and over again. And I remember back when it was just like C.J. and I constantly competing like every U.S. grappling. So he's always been tough to go against. Um, Seth Smith out of Richmond, uh, I've competed against him a couple times and he's beaten me. So eventually I hope to find the, uh, the key to unlocking that. And then everybody else who's, um, who I've ever competed against has made me better. So a lot of guys down here, Jake Whitfield, um, these guys are tough and I need to uh, keep competing against them. So. If I'm winning, I need to find out how to keep winning. And if I've lost him, I got to find that mistake and find a way to overcome it. Mm -hmm. On the other side, as an instructor, what do you think makes a good student? Like when you're teaching, what do you think? Ah, that 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 person's a really good student of mine. That's a yeah. The traits in those people. Well, it's tough because everybody's different. So you know, uh, you've seen enough coming up through your time doing jujitsu that everybody has a different style and everybody has a different way of learning and everybody sees things from a different perspective. But, and we had talked about this earlier, back when I started, it was take this brand new white belt and throw them into the den of lions and say, okay, if you can come back a second day, there's something to work with there. And that doesn't happen anymore. So now there's a lot of intro courses and a way to kind of hold uh, hold the new people's hands as they walk through, which I think is a fantastic way to get people interested in jujitsu and then stick with it. If you go into a class and everybody wants to beat you up, what incentive do you have to show up to the second class? But if you're enjoying what you're doing and the instructors enjoy teaching you that and the people you're training with enjoy seeing you every day and working with you that's something that makes jujitsu fun and interesting and i think one of the best traits is is it fun to train jujitsu and everybody wants to have fun and in order to have fun while doing it you need to have a good support system so your partners need to enjoy seeing you have a good time with you your instructors need to be friendly and involved in what they're doing. They can't be disconnected to the students and just take those techniques like, I need to teach this and then get out of here. So as long as the atmosphere is fantastic, 
then people enjoy going there every single day. And even though it's difficult and it's a workout, people want to continue doing that. And then after that, I think one thing that separates the best from the crowd is you got to become a, a jiu-jitsu nerd. So I stress this to the, the people that I teach is after jiu-jitsu class, I will go home and I will watch all these jiu-jitsu matches and I will watch breakdowns of techniques and I will read magazines and books. And if you could see my... Um, my magazine like collection where I have little post-its on it telling me this is the X guard and this is how to pass and just so I can go back when I'm teaching find that magazine look at it and say okay I'm going to teach something like that if you ever want to be good at something you have to become involved in it you have to become a nerd and even if it's just watching those techniques that say your academy puts online for you to watch it's important because nobody's a prodigy, right? Even BJ Penn had to learn. And if you take the time to study and get better at it, you will get better at it. And I think that's the most important thing is perseverance, being able to study, and then constantly overcoming problems and then being successful. After you reach your first big leap in jiu-jitsu or take the first big step. Let's say you get a blue belt. Maybe you've learned the fundamentals curriculum. What do you think the most important mistake or training error that people on that level make? Well, I think um, at blue belt, a major error at blue belt, which might keep people, because a lot of times blue belt is when some people end up quitting. And when people end up quitting at blue belt, it might be because they're not as good as they think they are. A lot of blue belts get that belt. And uh, even when I was a white belt, I wanted that blue belt because it looked fancy. It looked nice. It looked a whole lot nicer than my white belt on my gi. And I even may have gotten into that I think I know everything as a blue belt. And as a blue belt, you don't know everything. And you are just one stage above a white belt. But with that belt, you believe you know everything and then if you get put down a peg or two by maybe a purple, or brown, or black belt who's like, who shows you you don't know everything, it's a little disconcerting. And I think that might tend to force people out because they believe they were the alpha dog. And then when they get shown that they're not, they can't take it. But that also does a good thing in keeping those people who may have wanted to be that I'm the top dog out maybe those people needed to learn that lesson but I believe if they can overcome that and then also a lot of things life happens so life keeps people from training jiu-jitsu you get married you have kids your job moves you somewhere you have to respond to those things and then find a way to still train and some people don't do that injuries happen if you could work your way back from an injury so speaking of Sean McChesney like he had his shoulder blown out. It's tough to deal with that, do the physical therapy to come back, and then if something feels more comfortable, if it feels more comfortable to sit on the couch and uh, eat Swedish fish than it is to go to jiu-jitsu, people are going to do that. So you have to have the will to come back and get back to where you were. Swedish fish are delicious. Uh, 
so part of that I think is goal setting. You know, you have to sort of set goals along the way that are like, here's how I'm going to get back. And, you know, obviously, you know, you're in a different position now than you were at Blue Belt. Do you have black belt goals? I mean, do you have competition goals, teaching goals? I, I don't know how you think about the process of goal setting at the level that you're at now. Well, it is definitely different from when I was uh, purple, brown, and black belt. So when I was a uh, blue belt, that whole I need to get to the next belt wasn't really on my mind. And when I got my purple belt, it was a major surprise. And um, I know that you had told people to take pictures of their belts and talk about what was important. And I took a picture of my purple belt because I went to a competition. I think it was a Hickson Cup in Japan as a blue belt. And my teammates and I were there for blue belts. And um, when we went down to look at the brackets, we searched and we couldn't find our names. And it was very disconcerting because it was the day of the competition and we weren't on the brackets. And so we went back, told our instructor, like, our names aren't there. What's going to happen? And then uh, he pulled purple belts out of his backpack. And he's like, oh, well, you didn't check the purple belt brackets. And uh, it was fantastic to get that purple belt at the same time I was also like, oh, man, now i got to c- compete as a purple belt. And I did well. I medaled at that competition. I won a few matches, lost a match. But I really didn't have that goal set. Like, I want to become a purple belt. And I never really thought about brown belt. Obviously, attaining the black belt was a goal I had set when I was a white belt. But then once I got that black belt, I realized it starts all over. Once you're a black belt, fantastic. But then you're like, now what do I do? And you have to set those goals. And when you go compete as a black belt against somebody who may have had their black belt for 15 years, you're like, man, this guy is elite. And I'm just this lowly first day black belt. So the goals after that is now I need to get to the level of expert. Because once you get that black belt, you begin again. You're a baby. And then you have to stick with it, become a better instructor, become a better training partner, and then make yourself somebody that others look up to. And hopefully I can do that and continue to do that and then inspire other people to do that. Yeah, that's an incredible story. I've heard a lot of people getting their belts on the podium after doing well at a tournament, but the surprise promotion before you compete at a tournament is a new one, so that had to be an intense experience. Yeah, and it definitely makes that nervousness of competing ratchet up like 10 times so at least I was able to perform and I didn't uh, freeze up yeah most definitely and I also wanted to, to follow up that like the video that Daniel mentions a few a few shows back I asked people to send me pictures of their belts to call in leave voicemails talking about what that belt means to them we got a lot of amazing submissions and uh, the only thing that's holding us back is I haven't found the time to knit those together into a video talking about to, that, that, I'm, that I'm happy with but like we got some incredible stuff, so thank you to everyone who's sent in pictures of their belts, who's called our voicemail and left us stories about what that belt means to them. You can still do that. You can still email cagesidewhup at gmail.com or tweet them at us at cagesidewhoop, and, uh, and we'll get those into the video. But we should expect that in the next couple of weeks. But you also put out the, the greatest podium poses, which I was uh, talking to Andre yesterday, and... Uh, he had told me that my podium pose had to be fantastic, and then I completely forgot about it. So I think you may have come out to give me the trophy, 
and I forgot, I, I think I was planning on lifting you over my head, which I could definitely do. But uh, That's so, why we invented Photoshop, Daniel. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I will have to, next competition, do an awesome podium pose to beat the, uh, the current... Uh, the current number one. I don't know. You might already be the clubhouse leader, but either Daniel or Brandon Brown from Triangle Jiu-Jitsu both has the the sexiest uh, the new breed pose uh, at competition. But like, yeah, we are having a a, a a pose off on the podium, which one of these, which which Chrissy is going to want to kill me for. That's okay. That's all right. She, In two weeks, uh, Virginia Beach, U.S. Grappling, everybody should work to do their best podium pose off. Just to to come out and beat my uh, my pose. Yeah, we'll post Daniel's fo- pose to the Facebook. Just so in case you don't know what we're talking about, you can see it in all its glory. And I will Photoshop you lifting me over my head, or maybe we'll just do that, just like Hulk Hogan bench press, like when Hulk Hogan body slammed Andre the Giant. Exactly. I resemble Andre the Giant in many ways, like a, a French man with gigantism and a gigantic booze problem, <laughs> and a heavy appetite. And, oh, absolutely. Well, that much is true. At least I have a heavy appetite for jujitsu. So in the, we we got about five minutes left, and in those minutes, I want to talk to you about jujitsu nerdhood. You said some stuff that really struck a chord with me, and obviously, just listening to you describe sort of your own habits about teaching other people jujitsu and continuing to improve your own jujitsu, you teach all the time, you compete all the time, you train all the time, you ha- you watch videos, listen to this program, listen, to, you know, read magazines, all all this sort of stuff. I'm curious what you think the most effective learning strategy is for you and what you would recommend for others in terms of like starting down that road of jiu-jitsu nerd? Um, I think the best thing would be you just have to find sources that you you trust. So YouTube since 2005 or six, whenever it came out, is a fantastic way to see jiu-jitsu videos because back in the day, and they talk about it in books and in... Um, in magazines, when you had a fantastic new move, you didn't show anybody. You kept it close to your chest until the world championships, and then you sprung it out of everybody, and it may have won you a gold medal. But then for the next year, people thought of ways to stop it, and in that time, you were developing something new. But now, if you come up with a fantastic new move, somebody puts it on a video, and in less than a day, it's all over the world. But you never know who is putting out that video. It could be Joe Schmo, and he's not skilled at all. He could be a fake black belt. And you watch it, and without knowing who he is or what his qualifications are, like you might assume that, that that's a fantastic technique, and some people have been fooled by that. But um, a lot of times, if you know who are, you're getting that information from and you trust that source, you're going to get a lot of good information. Same thing goes with books, magazines. There's a lot of fantastic jujitsu books out there, not just about techniques and that, just the lifestyle and about either how hard or how easy or how, how exciting it is to get immersed into that jujitsu lifestyle. So it's great to read that to just know how it becomes a part of life. And then there's all sorts of technique books. There's all sorts of breakdowns. Uh, I constantly read uh, Jiu-Jitsu magazine and um, Jiu-Jitsu style. There's still plenty of mistakes on there, and uh, the, um, the English mistakes drive me nuts. The grammar mistakes drive me nuts, and I try to get past that. But sometimes they misspell Jiu-Jitsu on the cover of their magazine, which really drives me nuts. But 
there's a lot of good techniques in there and then you have to take those things and you got to go into the academy and you got to work on them that's why we have drill classes where you do it over and over and over again for four minutes drilling is very important so contrary to what kit dale said that it doesn't help you drilling does help you it becomes a part of muscle memory and then it helps you if you're going to roll or compete or just to learn it. So you have to drill and drill. I'm a big believer in drilling. I thought that was heinously irresponsible of Kit Dale. And to return to your refrain about let's look at the qualifications of the people that are teaching us these techniques, as Jake Whitfield is fond of saying, Rafael Mendez drills, Hicks and Gracie drills, Kit Dale doesn't drill. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> I mean, who, who are you going to listen to? Exactly. And when you're talking about, and, and speaking of also really good technique videos, Daniel was kind enough to do a worm guard instructional video for the concussion cast. We posted it on our Facebook page. I'm going to repost it sometime this week after the interview. So thank you for doing that. And that is a really quality instructional that I'm excited to, to work out, out and play, play around with. Yeah, I believe it was the the worm stand. So I've been hitting that a lot. Um, I think it it works, especially when you cannot take that big guy down to his butt. So this is a move that works. So try it out. Go to your academy. Drill it. Most definitely. Most definitely. We'll repost that right after the show. So we've just got a couple of minutes left. Is there anything that I didn't ask about that you really wish I would have asked about? Um, one thing I could think about is um, I'm working on my own book about my life from white belt all the way up to black belt but i think it's a it's a major work in progress i got the writing done in about two three weeks where i just i wrote and wrote then uh i've gone over the editing process two three four times and then i've put it off to the side and i've worked on other things and it sits on my um my coffee table at home and i just haven't picked it up in in a long time and it's something that I'll get back to and I'll probably add to it but it's something that I definitely want to get done at one point because I think it's important for people to spread their story out there and for others to read it and emulate it or even in the case of some books to read uh, what people have done and be like I don't want to make that mistake so it's something hopefully I'll get done but like I said before, life happens. Other stuff has gotten in the way, and once I get that done, I might get back to that book. Well, we will look forward to the book when it comes out, and uh, we want to thank you for taking the time to share your story with us today. And so Daniel Frank is a black belt at Revolution BJJ in Richmond, Virginia. He teaches a ton, including seminars and privates. If you have the opportunity to learn from him, I highly recommend it. He also was the victor at Toro Cup yesterday by Collar Choke. So, Daniel, congratulations on your win. Thanks so much for taking the time to come in. Thank you, uh, and I hope uh, everybody keeps listening to this show. It's fantastic. Oh, thanks so much for that. All right, folks, we're going to be back next week with a brand new show. Uh, hit us up on iTunes and Stitcher, and I'm Jeff Shaw, and we will see you next week. Mm-hmm.